The first day that we were that we were here up in Vermont, yeah. at the opening event for the summer, you were invited to give a, a welcoming in the Abenaki language, yeah. right? Yeah. And there was an acknowledgement from from the leadership of the school here that we are on Abenaki land, right? Yeah. I find that in not just interfaith, intentionally interfaith meetings and situations, gatherings, but but particularly in those in those cases, there's more of a priority placed on making that acknowledgement these days. And I'm curious what your take is on the proper way to go about doing that. You, you understand? What I, I mean? absolutely do. It's a big issue, actually. Um, the reason I agreed to do it here is because here in the Northeast, where the myth of disappearance is so still so prevalent, I think it's an important first step to say we are here. We are here in Abenaki, unceded land. There is We never signed a treaty. And to say it in language so they can hear our language, uh, so that's important for me. Um, I think if you're a non-native person doing it, you know, at the very least, find out how to pronounce the names of the people correctly. Find out something about the history. If there are tribal leaders around, please get in contact with them. See what they, you know, what what they would like you to say. Also, um, and this this is one of the problems. It's like it's not absolution. You don't get to say this as some rote thing, and now you're absolved from any responsibility. On the contrary. You know, um, people have talked about, well, what should you include? How about, um, here's an Abenaki author you should be aware of. You know, uh, there's an issue, the Penobscot are fighting for water rights because they've been told that although their reservation is islands, that they, the, they don't have any right to the water. Um, so, you know, pay attention, like you're here on Abenaki land, what, you have a responsibility. This is unceded land and you're here. So if you're going to have an acknowledgement, let's do it with good spirit and like realize that, again, reciprocity is something you have to give back. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, Americans tend to think about rights. Mm. Rights are really a big thing. Um, Native people tend to think in terms of responsibility, mm. you know, and so I think that's, that could be an interesting shift for people. Like Instead of saying, oh, it's my right to, you know, it's sort of like, what's my responsibility? Yeah. It becomes a different question. Dear listeners, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and typically you can find us live on the air every other Wednesday on Tacoma Radio, where we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. This week, I have a recorded conversation with Abenaki poet Cheryl Savageau and retired Lutheran pastor Mike Fawner. Our wide-ranging conversation explores Cheryl's Abenaki heritage and her decision to leave Catholicism as a youth 
and, plot twist, many years later convert to Judaism. We also discuss Mike's perspective on what it means to be a Christian, his time as a pastor in Asia, and how that experience instilled in him a deep admiration for Buddhist thought. I spoke to Cheryl and Mike in a creaky farmhouse on the campus of Middlebury College, Breadloaf School of English, where Mike is a student and Cheryl is a professor. Ripton, Vermont is nestled in the Green Mountains, and during the interview, we experienced one of those intense summer storms that comes suddenly and goes just as quickly. I really enjoyed this conversation and appreciate Cheryl and Mike for being so open to share their stories. I know that discussions about belief can sometimes be challenging, but I feel like we all learned something through the encounter. And in the end, that's why we get into this interfaith-ish. scary it's so intimate to talk about faith don't you think i think it's part and parcel of who we are you know in so many ways and and i thought one of the things cheryl that was was so um not immediate but what revealed itself through our conversations was when i went to your poetry reading i thought wow there's this there are all these spiritual dimensions to what you're writing about. Okay. And I thought, I want to know more about that. And then we sat down and we had a conversation, and then you said, I can't even remember how, how it came up, but then you said, oh, it converted to Judaism. Da, 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 da. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> what were the, what were the uh, spiritual things I came in? Well, I, in poetry, there's inherently a spiritual dimension to things Always. that you're writing about, right? Yeah. So I think that's part of what we're doing with the show is, is also demystifying a lot of that feeling or making the connections to see that as we move in even secular spaces, there's a certain literacy that we need to have when it comes to each other's traditions as well in order to be able to understand each other a little bit better. So... You know, that's the hope from the show, is to say, well, you know, let's take some time to learn about that, but be intentional about, about asking those questions and hearing about each other's reflections on, on each other's life histories and stories and what, what motivates us and what happens. Yeah. Hopefully it's I come from a school scary. where everything is spiritual. Art is spiritual, relationships are spiritual, oh. homemaking is spiritual. Well, we shared that, though. I, I come from that, that tradition. Yeah. Where our whole life, the whole universe, the whole world, the whole community, the whole family, the whole individual person is spiritual. Well, tell us, tell us a little bit about that, then. How, well, what, what, how is that informed uh, for you? It's informed by believing that what it means to be spiritual is to look at the depth uh, what Tillich calls the eternal now, that this deep moment that pervades all of our lives if we only pause and, and think about what we're doing. I mean, just the three of us here, the intimacy of our time together, trying to make uh, meaning, sharing stories uh, that have molded our lives. Uh, those are, for me, those are spiritual enterprises. That's how we make sense of our own lives and we find ourselves in, in the world, in the universe. So that's what I mean by spiritual. I don't mean necessarily something that uh, I see God or I hear a voice or something like that. Um, one of my favorite religious thinkers says the more religious uh, you are, 
uh, the more all of life becomes miraculous. You realize the miraculous quality that we're still alive, that we're alive, we're uh, forming relationships, we're learning, we're growing, we're contributing, we're receiving and giving. Um, and who's that? Friedrich Schleiermacher says that. So, so what, what, what influenced that perspective for you? Was that something that you were raised with, believing? So I grew up in what I call the never miss a Sunday church family. Even when we went on vacation, we went to church. Even when we were driving, I grew up in a small town in Illinois, and um, we never missed church. And not only did we never miss church, uh, and it was a very warm part of our family. Uh, but we gathered around, I have an older brother, a younger sister, and mom and dad, so there were five of us. And a warm, one of my warmest memories growing up is every night we would get on our knees around my parents' bed and say, now I lay me, you know, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. You know the, the prayer? Oh, yeah. yeah. And then we had a formula of words, and then we would say the Lord's Prayer. And it was a really warm kind of... Uh, you know, family-making moment uh, that we all enjoyed. And then Leslie and I, when we had kids, we did it all the way through while they were in high school. Mm. Uh, so I was, I was raised in this kind of a, a family. Um, and what was wonderful is that my parents took Jesus at his word, especially my mother, and that is, is that love is better than hatred, inclusion is better than exclusion, lifting up is better than pushing down, and that just came natural. Uh, to my mother. So I fear when I talk like this about my childhood that people might hear, boy, you grew up with a whole bunch of rules, didn't you? I mean, you know, and that your parents were there ready to chastise you or reprimand you if you broke a rule. Not at all. This freed us up. This freed us up to, uh, to be who we were, to share our lives and love and express, you know, our deepest feelings without any fear of recrimination or condemnation, and it meant who came into our family, into our home, and that was anybody and everybody. It uh, sounded like a pretty was, tight family. That you it was extremely family. tight. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it was just simple that we took, we kind of took Jesus at, at his word, that love is better than hate, that acceptance is better than rejection. So that was kind of the, the bread and butter mm -hmm. that I grew up with. Do you, do you feel like... Be, specifically being Lutheran had a big part of that, or if you had been in any denomination, then it would have been the same? It's impossible to answer, but I'm going to say that it had more to do with my mother, and just kind of my mother's character. My mother was somebody who suffered significant losses early in her life and had the grace to, uh, to live a life of, of hope, of well-being, of regretting, or, or uh, not regretting, but uh, of not feeling sorry for herself. She lost her mother when she was young, and then she had two brothers, and one was killed in World War II, and she was still a teenager, and, uh, you know, she pushed on in, in a way uh, that was truly grace. Mm -hmm. um, oh. And so I, I think it has more to do with who she was as a person yeah. than it was that we grew up in this particular, I think we could have been Jews, Muslims, Episcopalians, mm -hmm. Methodist. I don't think that that mattered. Mm -hmm. uh, my take. Mm 
Yeah, I think it had to do with the character of my mother, and my father was very similar too. But it was, it was, it was genetic to my mother. Mm -hmm. This is who she was. Mm -hmm. um, lady. Nice, I mean, it's like yeah. this is so different. Um, so I was also I'd go to church on Sunday, but that's because we were Catholic. We go to hell if we didn't. That was my take on it. Uh -huh. I mean, I'm sure my mother didn't feel that way about it, but that's, you know, it was a mortal sin if you didn't go to church. Holy so. day of obligation. Yes. Um, it was highly unsatisfying for me when I got to sixth, uh, to first grade. I got, you know, preparation for Holy Communion and all that, and we encountered the Baltimore Catechism, which just, I mean, like from day one, it, I just hated everything about it. And um, I have to say, my my sense of spirituality came from like lying in the grass and watching the grasshoppers. It did not come at all from church, and I feel like that's what still feeds me is that that kind of spirituality. So, um, my experience of, of of sort of family prayer at home was uh, during Lent. My mother would make us all like kneel in the living room on the hardwood floors with my bony knees and we had to say the rosary mm. and it was punishment I hated it and then um, she went through a very sort of religious phase and decided I had to go to Catholic high school I was in 8th grade reading Marx <laughs> you know, and, um, all of a sudden I was in this weird environment with nuns and uh, I think I w it was sophomore. I was a sophomore in high school, and we encountered the um, Augustine's proof of God, which is causality. You know, like who made this? Who made this? Who made this? Who made the universe? God made the universe. Who made God? God always was and always will be. <clears throat> so I was not convinced. I said. Why would you need to go outside the universe? Why can't you just say the universe always was and always will be? I mean, like, there's no evidence outside of that. In terms of naming it as as the as yeah, and, and you know, why would you go to some unknown? You know, or why can't we just say it's the universe and the universe is itself sacred? Mm -hmm. So I was <laughs> I was assigned in a detention, and I was supposed to, um, you know, write a. I guess I was supposed to write I was sorry, but what I ended up with doing was just writing, writing my, um, basically, my, I guess, my refutation of uh, St. Augustine, mm -hmm. and they never mentioned it, and neither did I, mm -hmm. you know, so that, but that is like, that was the end right there, I mean, by that time I was, I don't consider I was Catholic anymore after yeah. that point at all. So that, that idea of connecting with the universe, does that come back to what you were talking about at the beginning of, of feeling spiritual in nature, fearing the spirit well, it's, it's not so much in, I, I wouldn't use the word nature, but um, I think some of this actually comes from my grandmother and my father, and, and that I realize now some of this is Abenaki, that this is, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the sense of connectedness, of being in relation to everything, and that everything has spirit. It's an animate universe. So um, there's everything has personhood, you know, within that. So I can name that now for what it was. But I think, I think children in general though feel that. I think they have to be taught not to. I think 
children know that everything has personhood and that everything's alive until some adult from some messed up place says, no, it's not. And then they're like, oh, you know, and then you feel alienated and, you know, uh, have to struggle to that place where you can connect again. Yeah. When you say Abenaki, what, is, what does that mean? It's a Native American nation uh, in the Northeast. My family is from Western Maine and to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Um, but the Wabanaki people are from, uh, from Maine all the way over to Lake Champlain, south into Massachusetts, and north into Quebec. So that's our, our homeland. Yeah. So we're an Algonquin-speaking people, and our language is 70% verbs. Everything is alive and moving and continually in process. So um, it's, a different, it's a different way of perceiving the world. Um, Again, this is stuff I, I learned later. I did not grow up speaking Abenaki yeah. at, at all. Um, but uh, in English, it's hard, it's hard to think that way because everything is like object. Everything's an object in English. You know, it's almost exactly the reverse. There's like 70% nouns in English. So to think in terms of everything being in, in, in motion, you know, um, the uh, Potawatomi... Um, Botanist, ethnobotanist, and knowledge keeper, um, uh, Rob, <clears throat> Robin Kimmerer, talks about um, when she started studying language, and she was like, what do you mean Saturday can't be a verb? You know, it's like, you know, bay is not a verb, because the way you would say it is being a bay. And then she had this moment where it's like, oh, yeah, water, it could be a bay, it could be a river, it could be rain. It's sort of like it gives animacy to water, um, if that makes any sense mm -hmm. to you. Tell okay. us a little bit about what being Abenaki means, means to you. How is, it, how is it perceived in your family? And, and particularly, I think you're saying that your, your mother is not from an Abenaki family. Mm -mm. So what was that relationship like in your household? We knew we were Abenaki through my dad's family. Um, we, I did not know what things we did were Abenaki and what things we did weren't. You know, it's sort of like what things are French, what things are Abenaki, what things are like American, what things are just like weird Uncle Al, you know. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of doing that from Maxine Hunkingston, who talks about that in her family, like, what's Chinese, what, you know, and what's just, you know, weird Uncle, whatever. But that's so much what it is. It's like you're trying to as an adult, figure it out. It's like, I just thought to the world we said we were French-Canadian. Mm -hmm. I didn't know until in my 40s that was like a code word for French-Indian <laughs> most, oh, of, the, really? most oh, of the time. Okay. All right. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I didn't realize that. But when I met other French people, they didn't do stuff the way we did things. They didn't also sometimes pronounce things the way we pronounce things. Mm. Um, uh, one of the, I've written a poem about... Uh, a pie that we call Tukke. It was like, you know, when it's like one of those like French Canadian identity things you have it at the Christmas season and it's a ground oh you love this having knowing my history now. Um, so it's ground pork pie. And uh, we call it Tukke and then uh, I had one uncle who was would never eat it, uh, would never eat my grandmother's Tukke, said it wasn't Tukke, it was Tukia and um, there were supposed to be spices in it and so forth and whatever. And then I met other French people who said similar things. And it wasn't until I started learning the language that I realized, so well, there's no R's in the Benneke. 
So it couldn't be tortillera. It mm. became tuque. Okay. So there's these, you know, weird little, little uh, cultural things that were going on in the family that you didn't even know were Indian, you know, yeah. until later. They were just the way we did stuff in our family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. All right, so Mike, so thinking about that, thinking about sort of formation and learning about family and, and sort of coming into your own identity, I'm curious, how, how did you, or did you at some point take ownership of your of your Christian identity for yourself, as opposed to it being just sort of the air that you breathe, the water that you were swimming in, mm -hmm. you know, because of the family that you were involved with. So let me point to two early life, relatively early life experiences that I had that I think would move in the direction of responding. One is, on September 4th of 1970, the day before I was to leave for college, I was in an accident in which I was nearly killed. And exactly a week later, it was a Friday, a week later, a similar, I was in Cleveland, it was an industrial accident, it was a, I had a job for a snowplow factory, and was, was hurt opening a drum, a 55-gallon drum with an acetylene torch, and it exploded on me. And a week later, uh, a similar accident of an explosion from a gas, an enclosed gas can occurred in Cleveland and killed a person. Um, and so for me, um, that was kind of a big exclamation point of, you're lucky to be alive, life is valuable, life is precious, and it can easily end at any moment. So, so for my own spiritual journey, uh, quite apart from anything Christian, um, it was, it, it kind of indelibly imprinted on my own consciousness how precious life is, because I almost lost mine. Three years later then, as a, a junior in college, I studied on a Jewish studies institute in Jerusalem for six months, and I was one of four Christians, and there were 33 Jews, and we were doing all Jewish studies. And it was there that I took a Jewish uh, philosophy class. Uh, we were, it was a Brandeis University program, and they had their own faculty and their own curriculum, but then we were allowed to take one class outside, and I took something on Jewish philosophy, uh, Franz Rosenzweig and Martin Buber. And Rosenzweig talks a lot about the relationship between Christianity and Judaism. And the image that I remember from Rosenzweig is he compared the relationship to a candle. That with a candle, you have two kind of sources of light, if you will. You have the flame, and then you have the, the light that is radiating away. And he used that image as the flame is Judaism, the everla everlasting covenant that God has made with God's people. And the flame, the, uh, not flames, the uh, beams of light, the emanation of light from the flame is Christianity that takes this covenant, word of the covenant, out into the world. And, I, and that made a deep, deep impression upon me. And uh, I know we've talked about your Judaism and your becoming a Jew. And I believe Christians are Jews, and we're grafted onto the Jewish covenant by means of the, of the Jew, Jesus. So that's how I understand our relationship. I don't buy any sort of fulfillment. 
that there was an old covenant and now there's a new covenant and the old covenant is obsolete or it's been destroyed, it's no longer oper operative. But to answer your question, when did I take kind of possession, that period of time in Jerusalem, thinking about uh, in a otherwise very Jewish and Israeli uh, context, mm -hmm. thinking about my own faith, my own life, my own tradition as a minority, uh, kind of opened me to new understandings. Mm -hmm. And the significant was, was to see the affinity that I as a Christian had with my Jewish friends, with the Jewish tradition, with the, the covenant. And again, the image that I have is that Jesus the Jew is what grafts us onto that, that vine, mm. that, that covenant. Sounds like that was one of then actually quite a number of experiences where, where you were in, in places of in a, in a Correct. foreign land, right? So, so what and was, I would say something. Yeah, yeah. You know that I spent five years in Thailand early in my uh, Lutheran ministry, and and it had the same effect. Yeah. Not in terms of uh, thinking about covenantal membership or covenantal identity, uh, but working with Buddhists and teaching at a Buddhist university, going and hanging out with monks at Buddhist temples. Uh, I think the what I saw was is that we Christians, or we Jewish Christians, we don't have a corner on the market of, what do you want to call it, salvation, pure living, good living, love, you know, those sorts of values or those sorts of um, forms of life that religion promotes. We don't have a, a market on it. It's out there. It's called by different names. And, and that had a deep in influence on me. Yeah, well, talk, yeah. talk a little bit more about that. What, what, what brought you to, you know, to those places? You know, you're in Thailand, mm -hmm. then you were in Korea, right? At a later time. Um, mm -hmm. So what, in those, particularly when it comes to being in a, in a society that was majority Buddhist, right, in mm -hmm. Thailand... What did you learn from that experience? What what were the what were the things that kind of you know knocked you upside the head a little bit and 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 uh, gave you a new perspective? That the language is very different. The language of Christianity that I inherited was very kind of ethereal, if you will. Mm. Talk about things that we can't see. God as a father figure, a parental figure, uh, the spirit, uh, the, the church is an invisible. Uh, unity around the globe. So we speak in, in uh, ways that don't promote what, tactile thinking or things that you can touch. Buddhism talks about how you breathe, how you train your mind, insights that you have to see the ephemerality of life, the passing nature of life with the, uh, the aim of developing detachment. So it's, 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 uh, it's very physical. It's uh, it gives you steps to take, if you will, uh, for self-improvement, for uh, insight, understanding the nature of things, for the purpose of a certain quality of life. Do you think that changed your approach to your own faith? Oh, very much so. Practice? Okay, yeah, so. If, if anything, and this sounds awfully uh, <laughs> sort of polyglot, I consider myself in a certain way Buddhist as well, in as much as 
the Buddhist emphasis, especially on impermanence, mm. uh, is, is something that's extremely important. And, and I have no problem standing in one tradition, borrowing parts of other traditions that help me live. Mm -hmm. I think of the native traditions of the relationship with the, uh, with the natural world, with a spiritualized natural world, is very profound. I experience it in, in my own life and, and uh, knowing a little about native spiritualities and the relationship with animals. I loved what you said, Cheryl, about everything is alive. Things yeah. aren't dead. The whole, the whole world is it's animated. I, I, I experience that. And what your tradition has given to me is some language to say something that, that I've experienced. I can remember as a kid being down at the brook, you know, at the creek. And the running water and the living trees, and uh, it was like I was in a sanctuary. Absolutely. I was in a holy place. <clears throat> yes, I think, and I, I do. As I said, I think all children experience that. You know, if you're if you're out in the in the world and not just like in a maybe you don't maybe you don't have it if you're in the city. I don't know. I didn't grow up in the city. Um, I know I grew up on a lake <clears throat> when I was in first grade. The teacher was actually, this, this blows my mind now, like, how did, why, why were they even doing this? But she was doing the, this thing of, like, what's alive and what's not, you know, sort of, and she'd, like, be like, oh, you know, this, you know, a picture, she'd show a picture, like, raccoon, and be like, alive, you know, like, and there's, like, table, not alive, you know. <laughs> and then she said, water, and I was like, alive, and she said, no, water's not alive. <laughs> And I knew she was wrong. <laughs> I never believed a word she said uh -huh. ever again. Uh -huh. It was like if she could get that wrong, right. something as basic as water is alive, she didn't know that. I couldn't trust anything that came out of her mouth after that. <laughs> you know, literally, I was six years old. I remember that. Um, okay, so what you didn't expect is I, um, I practiced Buddhism in my 20s. Uh, Buddhist meditation. Uh -huh. um, I did Zazen. Um, I did not live in a Buddhist country, um, but I don't know, like some Buddhists came down from uh, the temple, uh, the, the ashram in Rochester, down to my college, which is Clark University. And what I liked about, I had already read like the Three Pillars of Zen and stuff, and that fascinated me because it wasn't intellectual. It was like, if you can name it, it's not. It's not the ultimate reality, whatever. If you can name it, it's not it. And I thought, okay, that makes sense to me. And it wasn't based on any kind of faith or anything. It was sort of just sit. Um, so I went um, to a you know, one-day um, session that I, they had. And um, I found out I could do it. <laughs> you know, I, was, I was, like, good at meditating. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of things in my life happen that way. It's like, you know, accidentally taking a poetry class, and you think you're going to read poems, they're writing poems, like, oh, I'll stay, and then I'm good at it. So then it's like, you know, so many things in my life happen that way. Um, so you have to be good at so many things, I guess. Well, not, not, no, no, there were many things, you know, you could, you could talk with my family about my, my failed pottery attempts, you know. <laughs> but... Um, so I did that for a while, and, but then what I found was um, this, you know, Zen is that sort of like, uh, they have the tradition of uh, koans, which are the unanswerable questions, and, you know, it, um, 
you want to be enlightened. And I realized at some point that I didn't really care about being enlightened. And I didn't really care about getting to the top of the mountain. You know? And those questions just didn't interest me. And then, um, as a result of that, was introduced to something called Shikantaza, which is essentially just sitting with no expectations, no striving. Um, you just sit with the knowledge that your true nature is unfolding. You don't have to do anything except sit. And so that's actually still a practice that I do, although I don't consider myself Buddhist anymore. It's just, it's just you know. Yeah. Um, so... So pulling, pulling like Mike was talking about, pulling mm -hmm. that the, the things that work for you that's going to, you know, center mm -hmm. yourself. Right. I, well, I guess so. I mean, I don't want to appropriate, you know, from anyone. I, I, mean, I think that Buddhism welcomes people in, and I think it's, it's different. I mean, I understand what you were saying about, oh, okay, that idea you just said about intimacy, that makes sense, that names something that I already know. Uh, which is different than the kind of appropriation that goes on of native religions, which is just not okay. Mm -hmm. you know, people doing ceremony and sweat lodges. Yeah, no. And no. That kind of thing. Yeah. <clears throat> can, uh, can, I'd like to respond to something because this yeah. uh, nature of sitting and zazen mm -hmm. is the Buddha nature. You know, mm -hmm. and, and that understanding of Buddhism, I mean, there's many Buddhisms, mm -hmm. um, but you discover who you already are. That there, there is. It's, it's. Uh, I think it's analogous to the inner light for the Quakers. You know that there is. It, it could be, but but that whole thing of like, what was my face before my parents were born, or like, what's what did you look like of, before you were born? One hand clapping. One hand clapping. All that. That that wasn't interesting to me at all. But what was interesting to me was just, you know, sit, knowing, because it it, it fits in with with everything else I know about life. It's like you just. You know, it's sort of like, I actually have a, a piece in my memoir that's coming out. It's called Meditation, the Fern, and that's how I feel about it. It's like the fern is just, you don't have to do anything. The fern just becomes itself, it just unfolds, you know. Can we come back to this idea? Yeah. I want I want to hear, you know, one of the things that you talked about when you had your, your poetry reading, you read a poem that was about your experience in college. Oh, and, graduate school. Yeah, yeah, in graduate school. So tell, tell us a little bit about, about what that experience was like. Yeah, so um, in 1992, my first book came out, and it was the 500, you know, the quincentennial of Columbus. And um, there was a in sort of solidarity sort of, of 500 nations here before Columbus. There was a huge writer's gathering in Oklahoma City. And uh, so that was sort of the beginning, in some ways, of my activism. But there were 500 Native writers that got together at, in Norman, Oklahoma, at a festival called Returning the Gift. <clears throat> and I just met Native people from all over North America, you know. And uh, a lot of the issues um, that were discussed there, I think, then became very important to me in, in coming back to my own community and working with that. So when I went to, decided to go to graduate school, well, back up, as a result of that, I got a lot of readings. And I decided that rather than just reading from my own book, I would do a couple of poems of mine and then read poems from all over North America. Because people were inviting me because of Columbus. You know, I mean, it wasn't just like, you know, I was nobody, you know, with my first book. Um, and so as a result of that, I was invited um, 
at Holy Cross College to come in and teach two courses in Native Lit. Um, so I did that for a couple of years, and then I thought, you know, it probably would be a good thing for me to get a master's degree, and went to UMass um, to do that. And my first semester um, encountered this professor um, who would not accept any native readings of texts, even when there was native sort of either, either native stuff in the text or native stuff that should have been in the text but wasn't. And so I was responding to that, you know, that our entire history was erased, um, that, you know, even a very left-leaning um, scholar, you know, could be so uh, oblivious and so accepting of the narrative of our disappearance. Um, actually said, there's only, there's only one story about Indians and we know, all know what it is. Um, who, when I, you know, did a native analysis of some of the texts, told me I was making everyone feel guilty. The narrative here in New England, well, everywhere, but here in New England especially, is one of disappearance. You know, used to be here, but not, we're not. Um, when in fact, we are still here. Um, <clears throat> but we had to, we had to uh, sort of be in plain sight, but invisible, you know, that whole hiding in plain sight thing, because it was not safe to be native. There were bounties on the heads of people in Maine you know, um, in the 1700s. Um, they were eugenics uh, experiments and um, mass sterilization of Native people in Vermont in the 1930s. Um, so it just wasn't, it wasn't safe, you know. Um, but we have always been here, but that narrative, you know, of disappearance is so strong. And, um, you know, I guess the narrative she was talking about was also like, we want you lost. I don't know, you know, like there aren't any real Indians left. The only real Indians are the dead Indians because we're, you know, as soon as our culture changes, it's considered inauthentic, unlike every other culture in the world that has to change in order to be alive, you see. So um, that's what I was encountering. Also, um, this, the same professor would accept uh, a feminist analysis of anything, but not a native analysis. But it was still new in terms of the scho of scholarship, yet people were just starting to have a native study department, for example. So what, what then now, you know, um, do you feel is, is part of your, your mission or the politics of your poetry to, you know, to put, put that um, agency in, in the work that you're yeah, doing. Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> Gerald Visner uses the, the term survivance, which, uh, unlike just survival, which can be, you know, uh, individual, has to do with the ongoingness of uh, a culture, uh, the, including the worldview, you know, the language if possible, but that sort of going forward, you know, and it's, it's a community thing. So, um, I guess... I know. I mean, that's what I'm involved in, very much, is that, you know, my work should be survivance work. Mm -hmm. What is the tone that's there? What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it's a combination of things, you know, and, and part of it is, is saying, yes, we're, we're telling our own stories now. Um, and some of the stories I'm telling for a, a wide audience and some of the stories I'm telling because they need to be out there for the people, you know. Um, and it, it's, 
it's partly, oh, you know, I've had many Native people in the Northeast, you know, come to me and say, you're telling my story. So there's that. Um, but there's also, well, we didn't know this story, and now this story is out in the world again, like a traditional story, for example. So it's like putting, putting it out there for the generations that are to come so that we can have this, you know, we can come together. I mean, we've all been in diaspora, you know, here, uh, Abenaki people, um, <clears throat> Western Abenaki, Penobscot and Passamaquoddy, like, they have places, actual places that are theirs. We do not. So, like, trying to come together as a, as a people. Um, and, you know, it's like different families have different pieces of culture. You know, so, like, putting that all together um, is part of it. And story is such a large part of it. So, as a storyteller, and I see, I see myself as a storyteller orally, but also uh, in written forms, whether it's poetry or memoir or uh, essay or whatever it is I'm doing, it's all story. Um, Mike, I want to sort of on, on a, probably a very different thread, but maybe there's a connection there. In your, in your travels, while you've been uh, particularly in Asia, have you encountered Christian communities that that's where the, the tables have been sort of flipped, where they have been the minority and, and, and been somewhat under threat um, in any of those spaces? Well, certainly in Thailand, the Christian community is, is a minority, a very small minority. I don't know that I would consider it under threat, mm -hmm. except there is a general uh, feeling, or at least there used to be. Now, I'm 35 years away from Thailand, or 30 years. I came back 30 years ago. Um, but there is a, an understanding, or there always was, that to be Thai, to be fully Thai, is to be Buddhist, uh, because it's a Buddhist country. Um, so, but I wouldn't call it under yeah. threat in any yeah. significant well, what, way. What, what was it like for you being um, with Thai and Korean Christians? What were those communities like? Because at some point, those, those individuals made a choice to leave what was probably a very, you know, long-standing culture in their families to choose to, yeah. you know, join this Christian community. You know, I'm not even sure I can identify one Thai Christian, because mm. uh, okay. I work completely in a Buddhist community. Uh -huh. I met, we worshipped at an expatriate church, an international church, so I knew Christians there, but they weren't Thais, or very few Thais. Mm -hmm. Korea is very different. The cities are strongly, strongly Christian. And it's a, it's a, a very uh, vibrant, um, in fact, I think there's more missionaries sent out from Korea than any other country. Because you were a pastor in, in Korea during that yes. time, right? Yes. So just, just walk us through, like, what was that experience like for you? Because it was a Korean Christian community? No. It was oh, you were an expat community yes. also. Yeah. Oh, we so did have many Koreans that came, but okay. they largely, no, it was an international See, so church. I've, I've, been, I've been asking all the wrong questions. Yeah, no, it was an international okay. church. I see. But, but the slightly humorous part of it is we did have many Korean members mm -hmm. who came because they wanted to practice their English. That's a good way to In fact, the local uh, Korean Lutheran church body had a long-standing uh, agreement with this single congregation, which was founded originally following the Korean War as a uh, Lutheran servicemen center. Uh -huh. So it was a military uh, related. It was very close to the main military base in Seoul, Yongsan. Yeah. 
Um, by then, a community of, of expats and Koreans grew up around it. But the Koreans, and we have many, but they came to practice their, their uh, English. Yeah. They wanted to hear English, because there's a high premium on knowing English right. in, in Korea. Well, you know at least one book that's probably got a copy in English and Korean that you can just read side by side. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, how did you, so Mike, how did you end up traveling to these different posts and going to Thailand, then going to Korea? You also said that you spent time in Nairobi. Right? Yep, most recently so in Nairobi. So, how uh, do those missions Well, there's up? a couple of ways of answering that. Personally, it's because I love the world and I'm filled with adventure. I'm an adventure-seeking person. Uh -huh. uh, I, I love meeting people from different places, with different backgrounds, eating different foods, hearing different languages, seeing different sites. Uh, and I attribute that very much to the Jewish Studies Institute, which was my first experience and how much I profited from that, how much I grew, how much I learned, uh, the friends that I made, that sort of thing. But pro more programmatically, uh, my church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, has very active overseas uh, work. And, and actually, basically none of it anymore for the last uh, 30 years, none of it aimed toward conversion, as we spoke of it before, trying to get people to switch mm. traditions. Mm -hmm. uh, we're much more involved in uh, educational work, medical work, agricultural work. We do have international congregations, but we don't have any Lutherans out there from my Lutheran, my brand of Lutheranism, mm. converting people to Christianity. Mm. Now, that said, I do happen to believe that the aim of all... Uh, you're not allowed to get up until I'm done talking, but I believe the aim of all religious work is conversion. But not conversion from one tradition to another, but rather the far more important conversion from apathy and indifference to commitment and engagement, from selfishness, self-centeredness, to other-centeredness, from denigrating the earth and other communities to celebrating the earth and other communities. So I believe that religion uh, does have this capability, and this is the great conversion, is, is for us to turn around from our, our self-centered ways and the ways that are destructive and exclusive and, and uh, harmful to ways that are loving and affirming and accepting. That's the great conversion. And that's a conversion that I think the world always needs. And I'll start with myself. It's yeah. the one that I always, yeah. that I need myself. Marrying into a Jewish family, my, my husband of the time and I decided that we would go to the holidays of both of our parents respectfully. Um, but he did not, he was not practicing. He, I, think, I think he considered himself an atheist. I would never have used that word for myself. Uh -huh. um, but, um, you know, being there for all the holidays, and um, slowly learning, you know, what Judaism was about. Um, it was, some of it was shocking to me, the differences in the readings of the same stories. Yeah. You know, that was interesting. Was it, was it a big cultural transition for you to, to, um, to, I mean, you didn't actually end up converting to Judaism until much later, right? Right, yeah. That's because I thought I was doing it for him. <laughs> 
And after a certain number of years, I realized that it was the Jewish calendar. My life ran around the Jewish calendar. And that when we split up, and I, a few months later, it was high holidays. And I wasn't in a place where I really knew anyone, and I didn't have anyone to celebrate high holidays with. I was furious at him, absolutely furious. And that's when I realized, you're not, you weren't doing this for him. At some point, this is just who you are, you know. Um, so that's been very important for me. So I started studying Hebrew at some point, and um, I became fascinated with the roots of words that I thought I knew what they meant. Um, uh, shalom, you know, which you know is a greeting, but you know, I was taught it means peace, but the root of it is actually wholeness. So the kind of peace it's talking about is not, you know, lack of conflict or, you know, whatever. Um, so that was interesting to me. Um, I knew people had tzedakah boxes, which were, you know, translated as charity. But it's not about charity. The root is injustice. It's not about I, I have to love people or it's not about my feelings. It's about this is justice. You know, people have less than you. The, you know, so... For me, that was very interesting, you know, just to sort of find out, um, well, language always holds everything, doesn't it? You know, language, language holds it. So that was interesting for me, that I wasn't being told how I had to feel about something. It's like, this is the right thing to do, so you do it. That's, we don't care how you feel about it. So how, how many Abenaki Jews have you come across? Um, Other ones? Well, Abenaki... Uh, I don't know if I've come across other Abenaki <laughs> Jews, but there are a lot of Jew, Jew Indians. We call ourselves Jew Indians. Uh -huh. <laughs> there are a lot of us. Uh -huh. I mean, converts or people that are in blended families? Both. Okay. Both. Uh, some, you know, born of a Jewish mother, so they're Jewish and they do the holidays. Mm -hmm. uh, some yes. marry, you know, converts. Mm -hmm. um, Is there like a natural confluence of those two streams of I find of it tradition? Like, yeah. I find it much easier to have those, to, to be a Benaki and be Jewish, then I would ever, I would, I would not be able to reconcile it with Catholicism at all. Uh -huh. You know, because uh, what you're describing as Christianity is almost like unrecognizable to me, mm -hmm. having been brought up in a very hierarchical Catholic, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. uh, Christianity. So for me, that's just, that's not reconcilable at all. Um, but Judaism, well also because <laughs> in Judaism, you have the thousands of names of God. You know, it's, it's, you know, I mean, popularly, they will, they'll do the, like, God, you know, Father's figure in the sky, but in fact, that's not what it is at all, as you know. You know, it's like El Rachamim and, you know, Shekinah. It's like there's all, you know, many, you know, an infinite, probably, number of names of God, and I love that. And it's very like Buddhism in some ways. If you know what it, you can name it, it's not it, you know. So that fits in with, the Abenaki idea of God, which our, our word is Kitsinuas, which means essentially great mystery. You know, you can, it's, it's everywhere, but it's unknowable at the same time. So those fit very nicely together for me, but admittedly, I lean toward the mystical <laughs> side of Judaism. So, you know, Tikkun Olam um, is really important to me. Repair the world. Yes, yes, yeah. This has been so wonderful, and I really appreciate both of you uh, being being so open to share about your your traditions and your stories. 
Um, we've had a, a fruitful conversation and back and forth dialogue and everything already, but I, I did want to say, are there questions that you have for each other about each other's stories that things that you wanted to clarify or, or, or understand better? I wonder where you, and I'm thinking of your poetry reading. Okay. Where you became such a natural person. A natural person. Natural person. You are comfortable in your own skin, from what I can tell. And the many times that you and I have sat together and had a meal or stood together and shared a bit of a conversation, or and I see you with your students, and there's just an ease of person with you. And I wonder if, if how you think about its origin, how it's nurtured by your um, community identification, your religious, spiritual views? I have to say my life has been a big struggle toward this. Um, I, okay, full disclosure, okay, I, I have bipolar disorder, so I had to really learn um, and struggle toward a place of stability, and I cherish it. And I, I walk away from certain situations that I might have engaged in. I don't, well, I know I'm still a little that way, but I, I don't take the bait in a lot triggers. of Triggers. Yeah. You know what triggers. Yeah, I know what they the are. Triggers, you know. And I, I, yeah, I cherish a lot of things that I might not have otherwise. There was a lot of years of struggle. So I wasn't always this comfortable, but I am now. So. Well, I have gained from you. Well, likewise, I, I feel like um, my idea of, of Christianity has been expanded because uh, w what you're describing is not at all how I have encountered it. And certainly with the Christianity that's out there in the news at this point, it's so hateful um, that, you know, I'm just I'm really... I'm, I'm embarrassed I'm, by Well, I'm glad to know that you are there and that you rep not just, and you're not a single person, but that you re represent a tradition of Christianity that is... Um, I guess, liberal, progressive, and spiritual. You know, I believe that when we think about spirituality, religion, uh, there's one of two ways to go. Either you live according to the laws, to the rules, and impose them on others. You impose them on yourself. Or, my favorite word, one of my favorite words, you live by grace. You live that, a sense of giftedness. Uh, and it frees you up, I think, to love and to... to of yourself. If there's one thing that that you feel is important for people who are not familiar with your with your tradition, you know, Abenaki, Jewish, Lutheran, or Christian more broadly, to know, what would be one thing that you'd you'd, you'd want them to know about about your tradition to sort of set the record the record straight? I would say. Um... For Abenaki, I would say reciprocity, and for Jewish, I would say justice. Reciprocity, everything you, everything is a gift given and returned. That yeah. would be the essence. That's the essence, mm -hmm. yeah. And I guess, yeah, and for, for Judaism, I said justice. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, I guess for me, it's like... Mm. I, I might say something like... Uh, I think Jesus is uh, vastly misconstrued in a lot of strands of Christianity. And, and so I think my word would be, let us remember that Jesus was uh, a person who stood up to unjust political and religious 
powers and oppose them. And he also moved to the margins of society to include those whose society was excluding. Which is he why did. you see him as a Jew. And one of the reasons I see him as yes. a Jew is right. Yeah. But he was both. He was both a uh, someone who stood up to unjust powers. Mm -hmm. And he was somebody who included the excluded. Well, thank you this very much. Fun. Thank you thank so you. much. I really thank you. And Cheryl, an honor to be with you. Oh, pleasure. And also with you, Jeff. Thank you so yes, much. Thank you. Dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with retired Lutheran pastor Mike Fawner and Abenaki poet Cheryl Savageau. A huge thanks to both of them again for taking the time to talk with me. Look for Cheryl's numerous books at your local bookseller and keep an eye out for her forthcoming memoir, Out of the Crazy Woods, in May 2020 from University of Nebraska Press. As always, I want to thank my fellow interfaith astronauts Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, as well as our resident DJ, Jeff Philosopher, for our show's music. You can find our entire catalog of interfaith-ish episodes basically anywhere you listen to podcasts, so remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and review so more folks can find out about us. We're on social media at InterfaithIsh, and you can email us about the InterfaithIsh you wish to dish at InterfaithIsh at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. We'll have another awesome episode of InterfaithIsh in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org.